our text of scripture this morning is Ephesians 5, verse 21 verses. Thanks, Lord's Day, we taught on two additional required elements of worship. Number one, the preaching of God's word, and number two, the teaching of God's word. And you're not the same. There is a distinction. The word preaching is the Greek word that means to herald or announce. Once announced, then it becomes an advocate. We are to become an advocate of what has been said. Preaching is not a pretty thing if the message is the word of God. The idea being that God has spoken and our response is to listen and obey Teaching is a great word that indicates dialogue or discussion. Explaining the meaning that has been preached or taught. Paul charged Timothy, and by extension all preachers, to do both of these things, to preach and to teach. To be a herald of the gospel and to be a teacher of what God has said in the gospel. Both in preaching and in teaching, there must be faithful remission of the scriptures with the understanding that we are promoting God's word, not our own word. I think maybe you should put that in your collective thought when you're listening to any preacher, especially the TV preachers. Faithful rendition of the scriptures with the understanding that we are promoting God's word, not our own word. And we learn that because God does not change, neither does his message. There's an obligation for those who preach or teach God's word. Paul tells Timothy to be prepared in season and out of season. What, what does that mean? Well, it means that there's no set time. Every time is a good time for broadcasting. Correct and rebuke, he says. Why do we need to do that? Well, because heresy and misinformation must be challenged and repudiated. Say, well, I don't like negative preaching. Well, I don't like it either, but if there weren't negative preachers, we wouldn't have to bring correction to what's being said on the airwaves. When we stray, we go off on some kind of tang tangent. We need to be brought back to the truth. And I say that for myself as well. If I go off on some kind of tangent, we need to be brought back. And I expect the elders of the church or the deacons together to say, you know, we think you were, you missed it. You missed the ball. And then Paul says to Timothy, he should be encouraged with Well, today's topic is the theme, Worship Through Music. Worship Through Music. As we come to our study, let's ask for the Lord to be Father, it's very important that we understand that music is the part of worship. And we did invent this. Man did not invent this. Your word teaches your says even the stars in the heavens sing to the praise and glory of Christ. Inanimate objects praising you about. What about us who are animate? We're alive. We are alive even in a special sense of being filled by the Spirit. What are we to do in terms of music? 
that you'll help us understand these things today. And if we have been, if we have had misconceptions, please correct them. And if we haven't thought that music was all that and, and vital and important to worship, I pray that you will show us this Honor your word. Your word is, of course, our light, our path to anything we hold dear. And it's thy word which is the truth. You are so sad. Thank you, Lord, and teach us now, we pray, by your spirit. talk to you today about worship through music. And I want to first of all talk about essential music. Verse 17 and following says, therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit and speak to one another with Psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, sing and make music in your heart to the Lord. I want you to notice that Paul's first charge is directed towards the edifying effect of congregational singing. Speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. The ESV says addressing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. The Phillips paraphrase, it says, express your joy in singing among yourselves psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. So I think you're starting to get a picture of what is being said. I'm finding it interesting that Paul's first charge in the area of music is to the people about the people. The statement refers to how ministry is carried out with music within the congregation. Ephesians is the book of the New Covenant in which the apostle takes some serious time to advocate for the building up of the believers in the faith. Ephesians 4, verse 11 and following, lists the officers of the church that are responsible for, verse 12, preparing God's people for works of service. But Jim, just a few short verses after exalting Christ as the head of the church, he says, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow into him who is the head, that is Christ. From him the whole body joined and held together by every supporting ligament grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Ephesians 4 verse 15 and 16. Now here we are, one chapter later, chapter 5, when Paul's talking about singing within a congregational setting, and the singing is commanded to be sung to one another. I don't know if you've ever thought about that, but here it is. Okay, why would we sing to one another? Well, it's part and parcel to the building up of the body of Christ as all of us move on the vertical plane to become more and more like Christ. Have you ever thought of participation in congregational singing as a means of edifying one another in the faith? And in particular, in the goal of becoming more like Christ. fact that Jesus anticipates music as part of the worship of him is in the next phrase, which we'll look at in a moment, but for now, just consider how your singing builds up your brothers and sisters in faith. My grandmother on my mother's side had a very penetrating voice. Piercing voice, when the rose cold up yonder will be there. That's the way, uh, the way she sang in, in the morning worship service. And everyone went, mm, who's that lady sitting in the front row, by the way? She sang with all of her heart. 
she didn't much care if she came across it maybe being a little pretentious or obnoxious or any of that. She wasn't singing for us. She was singing to the Lord. Songs, hymns, spiritual songs. Not just to the Lord. But we help each other grow in grace and grow in knowledge when we sing. How can such a singing, such singing build people up? Well, it does so by the content of what is sung. What's in the content of our hymnology, <coughs> our spiritual songs, and so forth? Well, three things. Number one, songs. The Hebrew word is mizmar. It means a poem that is set to music. From the Hebrew zalmar, to strike with the fingers the strings on a stringed instrument. To make music accompanied by the voice. You can't have a poem without the content of the voice to celebrate in the song. Think of all the songs that we have in our Bible, most of them probably written by David, but also Asaph, also Moses, and others, the Psalter became the hymn book of the Old Testament people. Some churches follow the practice of the Puritans, that is, they are strictly psalm singers in their worship. That's all they sing. They don't sing any gospel songs or modern songs. It's always the songs that they sing, which is okay. What is it about the songs that make them a safe and reliable expression to worship which is acceptable to God? Well, is it not that such poems are part of the sacred canon of Scripture? They're not just scriptural, they are scripture, if you see the difference. I don't think it can stray too far in theology or human expression of worship when the words you are singing are the inspired texts of scripture. You're on safe ground with regard to that, are you not? What about hymns? So we have songs. What about hymns? The Greek is humanas. Sounds like English hymns, right? And it means praise or celebration song. Odd as it may seem, this is the word used in Matthew 26, verse 30, where we are told the night of Jesus' betrayal and arrest, the disciples, minus Judas, ate the Passover feast with Jesus, and Matthew records, when they had sung a hymn, Humnas, they went out to the Mount of Olives, which was in the Garden of Gethsemane. They didn't sing a song. They sang a hymn. Why would Jesus sing a praise song with his disciples just before his arrest, his trial, and his eventual crucifixion? There's some mystery there, right? What was celebratory about that night, about that event, that would cause him to want to sing a praise song? The writer of Hebrews responds, Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who... For the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, sat down on the right hand of the throne of God. Hebrews 12, verse 2. Oh, there's a lot of mystery in that verse, isn't there? What could possibly be joyous about betrayal that led to a cross? Paul answers in Philippians 2. He says that being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself 
He became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Yeah. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that's above every name. That at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. Philippians 2, verses 8. The joy of the cross for Jesus was the completion of the Father's determination to save the people from their sin by substituting his Son in their place, for which Christ happily volunteered. Wow. You know that many of our hymns celebrate Jesus' work of Trinity or the inmate, it doesn't matter. They're in there. Copious amounts. So we have songs, we have hymns. And then Paul mentions a third, spiritual songs. This is a Greek word, pneumatikos. Pneuma is the Greek word for spirit. Breath of the Holy Spirit. So pneumatikos are songs of a particularly holy or somber reflection. Paul calls the law, for example, pneumatikos in Romans 7 verse 14 in contrast to his own sinful flesh. So rather than spiritual songs referring to the contemporary Christian music, as some have suggested, the word is full of reverence and awe. They're spiritual songs, meaning the Holy Spirit inspired. Paul uses this to explain his ministry of preaching the gospel. In 1 Corinthians 2 verse 13 we read, this is what we speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but by words taught by the Spirit expressing, expressing spiritual truth in Pneumonicos, expressing spiritual truths in spiritual words. Pneumonicos. 1 Corinthians 2.13. Now for a song to be spiritual, it must be bathed in the purity of the Holy Spirit. So here's a test. Ask yourself, can you picture God's Spirit singing or promoting this song? a good test. Congregational singing is edifying. It will build up your brother or sister in Christ in that the music sung or the music played consists of songs, yes, grace poems from scripture itself set to music, can't argue with that, hymns, celebratory songs, Spiritual songs, songs whose words and music are saturated with the holiness of God's Spirit, and all sung, all played with fervor and joy. This is all part of essential, essential music. I think you know that, that we try to do this every Sunday. Have this megaphone in our morning worship. Secondly, essential music has a Godward element. So it's this, it has this on our plane type, but also it has a godly element. Look at verse 19. Sing and make music in, and I says, your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything, in the name of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So we are studying a, a verse that commands that music be a part of our worship of God, but people have used this verse to teach just the opposite. 
say, what do you mean by that? Well, many people place the emphasis of the command on the little word in. Sing and make music in your heart to the Lord. And the interpretation is given, well, you know, I don't have to sing audibly. So long as I am singing in my heart to the Lord. Have you heard that interpretation? And to bolster this view, they go on to say, well, you know, God knows my heart. Which, of course, is true. He does. But they're using the omniscience of God to excuse himself from saying Lord. I've heard all the excuses. Well, I can't sing. When I sing, I sing flat, and I'm embarrassed. I cannot carry a tune. I don't, I just don't have an ear for music. All of these things notwithstanding, here's what the text actually states. The ESV has it correct. Singing and making melody to the Lord with all your heart. With all your heart. Now I know why the other translations opt for in the heart instead of with all your heart. It's because any true devotion to God and worship begins in the heart. That's true. But where there is sincerity in worship, the singing will of necessity be with all your heart. Nothing held back as we express our thankfulness, it's in the text there, to God the Father for all that he has done and for all that we have in Christ. I would even go so far as to say that one can sense the sincerity of people in worshiping God by their participation in singing praises and in singing thanksgiving to God with fervor and with passion. Now, it's not the only criteria, as we've already noted. The music, the lyrics, the decorum of the participants must not violate what God deems to be holy. But, but profane is not necessarily a characteristic of passion. You can be passionate and not profane. We're to be engaged in the lyrics and in the music so long as these, these things exalt the Savior and not the singer, not the musician. Oh, and what about the problem of feeling incompetent to sing well or play an instrument without getting a few sour notes? Note verse 21. Paul commands that we address one another in psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. And he further commands that we're to sing and make melody. The word, the expression make melody means to twang the strings. So he's referring to the heart or something of that. To make melody to the Lord with all of your heart. Now notice, submitting to one another out of reverence. Well, how did this slip into the conversation? What does submitting to one another out of reverence to Christ have to do with singing and making music in the church? Let me give you a true story as an illustration. Every Christmas, our church endeavors to use its choir to present a program of music and praise to God that's really open to the public. It won't be long, Jerry, probably, and we'll be starting to rehearse for that. For many years, we have incorporated choirs from Swartz Creek High School. They sing some numbers, our choir sings some numbers. But the other year made it very, very dangerous to have all those high schoolers on the road coming from all the way from distance from Swartz Creek to Manamora because the roads were just sheet ice. 
So we canceled them. We canceled the Swords Creek Park. We didn't cancel the program. We just canceled them so they wouldn't have to drive on those roads. But we went on with the program utilizing just our own in-house car. Some of you probably remember that. One visitor who comes every year is quite an accomplished Christian musician in his own right. He sings soul parts in the community presentation of Handel's Messiah. If you know anything about Handel's Messiah, it is difficult, difficult music. You say, well, it sounds good. Yeah, but singing it is difficult. He teaches music on the college level. He's been asked to perform in various quality programs throughout the state, but every year, scheduled for a meeting, he will be found where you are sitting to listen to a small country church choir with no formal education or training whatsoever in music. And his praise and thankfulness is genuinely expressed to me and others for what he calls a very fine job that was done. Fine job? <laughs> really? With many sour notes and miscues, with half the choir missing because of sickness, with all of our own people sick, with women singing tenor parts because we don't have enough men to sing those parts in the music. Here's his definition of a fine music. lyrics sung, the musical accompaniment, the chosen hymns, the scripture reading after all, to so God-honoring compared to what others are doing. In the name of God, it is an utter delight to be with you every year and to hear the gospel read and sung. You know what that is? That is the submitting to one another referenced by Paul in a man whose musical skills excel ours many times over but his praise is for what God is doing through our humble efforts and therein he rejoices each of us need to grasp something of this mission to one another and then you won't be so self-conscious about singing with all your heart to Christ. It's not about you. It's about Christ. Bring the praise to Him. The words of Jesus haunt me at times like this, at times when I'm self-conscious, when I'm timid, when I'm afraid. What are His words? If anyone is ashamed, <clears throat> ashamed of me, in my words, in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his Father's glory with his holy angels. Mark 8, verse 3. Worship is about God. It's not about you. So let us repent of our timidity and become engaged. So then essential music is in worship consists of songs sung with lyrics that teach and encourage and strengthen the brethren who are gathered here beside you and whose music maintains a holy demeanor. It is also songs sung with all the heart, the praise, and thanksgiving of God for who and what he is and what he has. This is essential Christian music, <coughs> worship music. Now, over against essential music, there's what I'm calling non-essential, but complementary music in worship. What's that? Well, choirs, for one thing. Where did we get choirs? Where did the church get that concept? Is there a command for choirs, or is this just the invention of men? 
Nehemiah, perhaps unwittingly, gives us the history at the completion of the restoration of Jerusalem's walls that were rebuilt after Nebuchadnezzar bashed them all down. And here's what he says. At the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, the Levites were sold out from where they lived and were brought to Jerusalem to celebrate joyfully the dedication with songs of thanksgiving and with the music of cymbals and harps and lyres. The singers also are brought together from the region around Jerusalem where the singers had built villages for themselves around Jerusalem. I also assigned two large choirs to give thanks. One was to proceed on top of the wall to the right, the second choir proceeded in the opposite direction. I followed them on top of the wall. The choir sang under the direction of Jehezerah. And on that day they offered great sacrifices, rejoicing because God had given them great joy. The women and children also rejoiced. The sound of rejoicing in Jerusalem could be heard far away. Without the priest, he said, they performed the service of their God and the service of purification as did also the singers and the gatekeepers according to the commands of David and his son Solomon. For long ago in the days of David and Asaph, there had been directors for the singers and for the songs of praise and thanksgiving to God. Nehemiah 12, verse 27. So the singers, who also composed the choirs, were established in the days of David and Saul. And this makes sense, since it was David who composed the lion's share of the songs. And we get the idea that these appointed singers and choirs were established to aid the music expressions of worship by the people. And they were such large numbers that they even built cities for themselves perhaps the forerunner of the academies for the arts, they built cities for their choirs surrounding Jerusalem. Music was part of Old Testament worship. And then secondly, in addition to vocal music, choirs and singers, David also established an instrumentalist. You can find this in 2 Chronicles 25, verse 1 and following. David, together with the commanders of the army, set about some of the sons of Asaph, Heman, and Jeduthun. These are the three fathers. For the ministry of prophesying, accompanied by harp and lyres and cymbals. And then there's a lengthy list of names of all the musicians. Then he says, all these men were under the supervision of their fathers, for the music of the temple of the Lord with cymbals and lyres and harps, for the ministry of the house of God, Asaph, Jeduth, and Heman were under the supervision of the king, along with their relatives, all of them trained and skilled in music for the Lord. They humbled, they numbered rather, 288. 288 musicians. Young and old alike, teacher as well as student, they cast lots for their duties, that is, for their service schedules. Second Chronicles 25, verse 1 and 5. That's a lot of musicians, right? 288, but they were assigned at a certain time of the year, and they went up and served that time. The instruments involve most of the categories into which modern-day instruments fall. Harps, lyres, those are string instruments. Trumpets, horns, those are brass instruments. Used for battle calls, yes, but also music. Also at your appointed times of rejoicing, your appointed feasts and new moons and festivals, you are to sound with trumpets over your burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, and they will be a memorial for you before your God, I am the Lord your God. Numbers 10, 10. Or again, David and the whole house of Israel were celebrating with all of their might before the Lord with songs and with harps and lyres and tambourines and 
sisters, tambourines and sisters, are cast, they're like castanets. Cymbals, percussion instrument. Percussion instruments are like our piano. Piano's a percussion instrument. Flutes, there's your woodwind family. And we'll sing, you will sing as on into the night you celebrate a holy festival. Your hearts will rejoice, and when people go with flutes to the mountain of the Lord, to the rock of Israel. Isaiah 30, verse 29. Wow. All the instruments are there, pretty much. Say, so, oh, where's the, wait a minute, where's the drugs? Well, they're mentioned in regard to Nebuchadnezzar's edict to the Hebrews. Now, if you're ready, and when you hear the sound of the horn, the pipes, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the drum, and entire musical ensemble, you fall down and worship the statue that I have made well and good for you. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be thrown into a furnace of blazing fire. And who is the God that will deliver you out of my hands? Daniel 3, verse 4. Now, when I check the original language, the word in, is a Hebrew. It's, it's a Hebrew transliteration. Now, a transliteration is not a translation. A transliteration is a word that is Englandized. It's a foreign language, but it's Englandized for our purposes. For example, the Greek word solitarion, psalter, string instrument whose music is obtained by striking the strings. In our text, verse 19, in the words making melody is really, in the Greek, twanging the strings. Making melody, twanging the strings. Bottom line, this is not a drum. In our modern understanding, an animal skin stretched over a hollow log or a ceramic or a metal cylinder, but more like a tambourine drum. What do we say about cultures which have no grass or woodwind or string instruments? Our missionary, Don Pataki, told us in the African churches to whom he ministers, use, they use drums to accompany worship songs for his people. They're not snare drums, they're, they're tom-tom drums. So we don't have that, but that's what they have, so yeah, that's what they use. What about electronic instruments? It's like our Yamaha piano right here. Do you know that virtually every kind, if not every instrument, is on that piano electronically? Oval, saxophone, trumpet, bells, triangle, pipe organ, clarinet, even drums, they're all on that instrument electronically. But just because they're available to us does not compel us to use them. Sometimes the world's use of such instruments for rock music and dance bands and parties and the like are so ingrained in people's thinking they cannot handle the use of these same instruments in a spiritual format, especially in worship. They don't consider it possible. They can't look at it in a different way. At best, the use of choirs and instrumentalists may complement the music of worship service, but neither of them are essential. You know, in China, in Muslim countries, in the house churches around the world, they don't sing. Why don't they sing? Because the enemy will hear them sing. And they come and arrest them for worshiping God. So they keep everything <coughs> low key. You do what you got. 
give up worshiping God just because society makes it tough on you? Or you live in a culture that hates God? Well, so what are some of the characteristics of worshipful music? Well, number one, it should be sober, that is serious reflection on the will of God. Verse 15 of our text says, be very careful how you live, not as unwise, but as wise. Verse 17, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Verse 18, do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Means the Greek is an abandonment of profligate lifestyle where you lose control of your sense. All of these warnings are issued against any idea of just letting your hair down, that we hear people say, or letting yourself go when it comes to worship music. Any of you who have witnessed some of the party scenes in movies or in real life know what Paul's talking about here. The world relishes the idea of working themselves into a frenzy and relaxing any and all inhibitions or restraint. But Paul says, when you come together, worship before God, worship, restrain yourself. This is not a time for letting loose, but a time, verse 18 and following, to be filled with the Spirit. Even in what was a legitimate use of the gift of the spirit, the gift of tongues, the ability to speak true languages without formal training in those languages for the purpose of propagating the gospel, Paul told the Corinthian church, What then shall we say, brothers? When you come together, every one of you has a hymn or a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue of interpretation, all of these must be done for the strengthening of the church. 1 Corinthians 14, 26. Same as we've learned this morning about our union. Verse 19. We're to address one another to build each other up in the faith. But the Corinthian brethren were butting in when someone else was speaking. That's not kind. It's rude. It's out of order kind of one-upmanship was, up, was going on. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14.33, God's not a God of disorder. Why are you acting that way? Why are you singing that way? God is not a God of disorder, but of peace. Verse 40, everything should be done in a fitting and orderly manner. Does that sound like you just let things fly? No, the point is restrain yourself. Control your emotions. You're worshiping God. He's not into chaos. He's not into confusion. Our text says don't act like a drunk. But verse 18, be filled with the Spirit. Some protests, well, that's what I'm doing. You know, I just I just feel the spirit moving and I have to move. I have to shout and jump. Sway and praise to God. It's the appeal to sin in the name of the spirit. So how do you says this. In answer to those who said, I just got to speak my peace because the Spirit's moving me. Here's what Paul said. The spirits of prophets are subject to the control of prophets. For God is not a God of disorder. Don't you dare attribute to the Spirit something that's way out of place in worship because you want to give it a spiritual flavor. And there are 
many churches today that do this. Well, the Spirit said, or the Spirit taught me to. And Paul says, uh-uh. No, no, no. The Spirit of prophets are subject to the control of those prophets. For God is not a God of disorder. So, reflection on the will of God is important. Secondly, a conscious awareness that God is watching and listening. I wonder if we ever thought about this. God's watching. He's listening. We learned this morning that worship music is addressed to each other. Yeah, that's true for the purpose of building one another in the faith, but also that the music is performed with all of your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 19. Music is to the Lord. What's the chief characteristic of God? What can be said of him that cannot be said of any other person? When Aaron's two sons offered unauthorized fire before God, the Lord torched them on the spot. Do you remember that? And Moses explained. Because Aaron was upset. They were his sons. I'd be upset too. Moses then said to Aaron, This is what the Lord spoke of when he said, Among those who approach me, I will show myself holy. In the sight of all the people, I will be honored. And Aaron remained silent as well he should. Leviticus 10, verse 3. He didn't have any argument. Nadab and Abihu, Aaron's son, were out. They were out of order. Out of order. the question, is the God of the New Covenant any different? Is he any less holy? Is he any more lenient when it comes to us approaching him? Since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably, says Paul, with reverence and all for our God here's the reason why we should do that for our God is a consuming fire Hebrews 12 verse 28 should be aware of this nothing's changed just because we move into the New Testament God is still God, he's still holy and we're to worship God acceptably with reverence and with all He's watching, he's listening to our worship. The worship music is sober. We are to be aware that God is listening. And then thirdly, we're to understand it as an expression of gratitude to God for all that we are and all that we have in Him. Verse 20 says that our singing to God Always giving thanks to God the Father for everything. Twin text, Colossians 3.16, the following says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom, and mm, as you sing songs and hymns and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, whether it's in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Colossians 3, 16 and 17. Singing thanks to God for everything. Bad things too? Yeah. Sorrowful things that come into your life? 
Yes. Much of life is fraught with reversible reversals because we live in a cursed world. Some heartache we bring on ourselves because of willful sin, that's true. So when the Lord rebukes us, when he chastens us, when he disciplines us, honest hymnology will reflect this. All of our hymns are not bubbling up. Happy, happy, happy. Especially in Trinity, there's some somber hymns with somber music. People say, oh, I don't like that. They're all in minor tunes. Well, they're in minor tunes for a reason. When the Lord rebukes us, when he chastens us, when he directs our thoughts to sinful conduct that needs to be repented of, they're an attempt by the hymn writers to express thanks to God for everything, including the negatives of life, even the hard things of, that God sends into our lives. We're to be thankful for all things. Well, why should we be thankful for hard things that God sends into our lives? Because he uses those things to discipline us and to change us and to make us think seriously about repentance and coming into a right relationship with Christ. Yet I would say that the sorrowful tones of such hymns usually reflect, reflect an assured, hopeful outcome. They usually end hopefully. Why? Our fathers disciplined us for a little while as they thought best, writes the writer Hebrews. But God disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, that's true, but painful, yeah. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Therefore, Strengthen your feeble arms. Strengthen your weak knees. Make every effort to live in peace with all men and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Hebrews 12, verse 10 and 11. We can all be thankful for that, right? That God is in his discipline is dealing with us to make us more holy. If it requires a spanking from the Lord, I'll gladly take that. But I'll not be lost in the day of judgment. I can be absent from the body present. It's all there. God has it all there. His doing is good. Our Lord, we thank you for the truth that. Scripture is given to us, music is given to us to worship you. Help us to see that. So we ought to be able to sing with gusto. We ought to be able to sing with great joy in our heart. We can even sing some sad hymns that deal with our sin and call us to repentance, knowing that uh, that's the place we need to get to to rid ourselves of the stain of sin. we got to be honest. We have to be honest with ourselves and realize that yes, we are sinners and we need your grace. We pray that you will give us your grace. Bathe us in your grace. And graciously you spank us when we need it. That we won't perish, the scripture says. That's what discipline is for. But we won't die the death of judgment. Help us to love you for that. And to profit from anything negative you send into our lives, keeping our focus on Jesus, who went before us, who's coming again. He's coming in holiness. And he's coming for a holy people. 
Spirit of God makes us holy through the discipline that He establishes in our lives through the sprinkled blood of Jesus on us. Thank you, Holy Spirit. In His name we pray with thanksgiving. closing him is from the hymnal number 264 thought we close with a praise hymn because really we ought to praise God for all the things that he does for us even this, even the discipline that I just talked about 264, let's stand as we sing. judgment and wrath, but in holiness as his children. Because of his great love for us, his sacrificial death of Christ on the cross. Our Lord, we thank you for your word and we praise you for it. Pray that you will bless us with the truth of your word, the scriptures. Where we have failed you, we pray that you will forgive us and help us to see that we're to worship you in every aspect of the elements of worship, including our music, which means we're to sing to the Lord, we're to sing with gusto, with confidence, with belief, we're to minister to one another as we do this, and we're to praise God as we do this. I pray that you would help us to see that. So it's not a question of whether we can sing on key or if we know how to read music or any of the other objections that people throw up as to why they don't participate in audible singing and praise to you. Help us to get past all of that. It's because it's selfishness. That's what it is. It's being self-centered. Help us to see when we pray and worship. 
sing songs to you, to pray to you, to read your scriptures, to be emboldened by all these aspects of worship. Honor and glorify your son Jesus. And through us we pray his will in Christ's name. Amen. We are dismissed. Thank you.